This is The Other Side Australia with Damien Curry, the new podcast for the quiet Australians. G'day and welcome to episode 15 of The Other Side Australia, uploaded Friday morning, December the 4th, 2020. Welcome wherever you're listening, on your way to work, at the gym, doing the chores, lazing around. This is your summary of the news and views of the past week. The Australian economy turns around a little bit, but we are a long way from recovering and lots of industries have suffered hugely. Get ready for the bumpy road ahead. We'll explain everything very simply in just a moment. Lots of news on that front this week and we've got a good clear summary for you. We'll have an update on the COVID situation in Europe and in particular the UK. I'll be playing you one of the most entertaining speeches from Westminster this week. It is a beauty. Hang on for that one. China, China, China. Things are getting really hot between Beijing and Canberra. And we'll explore why we should not back down under any circumstances. No, Jimmy Barnes, it's not a cultural thing and it's not our fault. The Chinese Communist Party is not about to start doing the right thing and being our best mate if we suddenly be all sweet and nice to them. They want increased global influence. They're well on the way to getting it. And the sooner the West realizes this, the better. Just ask that other former British colony, Hong Kong, and our good friends in Taiwan. We're going to hear from Australia's top foreign affairs official, the Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, about her views on China and how we should be managing things. This is a segment no Australian who cares about our country should miss. And Donald Trump speaks. We'll be giving you an exceptional summary of where things are at in the US election craziness, right up to date and comprehensive with our North American expert, Ray Radowski. We won't brush over the very real claims of fraud and shenanigans, but we also won't overstate Trump's chances. We get realistic. You'll get both sides of the story here because the mainstream media's baseless claim that the claims are baseless is pretty baseless. All that coming up as we bring you right up to speed on Australia's best no-nonsense commentary of the week, all in just one jam-packed hour. Let's go. All right, well, the newspapers are all cheering uh, this week that Australia has recorded its strongest quarter of economic growth in 45 years only because we're coming off the, the greatest drop in economic growth in longer than that. Um, all because of the easing, of course, of COVID-19 restrictions and uh, also because of the government stimulus packages like JobKeeper that have uh, really sparked a big surge in consumer spending. The economy jumped 3.3% from July to September. That's the third quarter. Uh, that's a rebound from the 7% negative GDP growth. They always talk about negative growth. <laughs> it's actually a decline uh, that we suffered from April to June, the second quarter of the year. So we went down 7, now we've gone back up 3.3. So now we're only down, what's that, 3.7% since March. 
Uh, we are down 4.2% since December. So year on year, we're down 4.2%. Now, two of the big banks, the CBA and the NAB, are uh, saying that we're probably going to have another 2% growth in the next three months, so in the fourth quarter. Um, and that'll be mainly because of Victoria's economy finally coming back online, or should we say what's left of Victoria's economy coming back online. Uh, both the Prime Minister and the Treasurer say it is going to be a long, bumpy road back. The recovery in the labour market's been a bit faster than expected. Two million fewer Australians were on JobKeeper in October than in September, so that's really good. Uh, but the government's got to do a lot more to stimulate private sector investment, which has um, really taken a big, steep dive uh, in the September quarter. And compared to last December, our total consumption, the total amount that we're consuming is down 6.5%. And some sectors have really copped it, thanks to the highly questionable and unnecessarily long state border closures. Uh, transport services are 82% down on this time last year. Thank God if you're not in the transport industry, 82% down year on year. And the food and uh, cafes and hospitality industries and restaurants and hotels, 40, 40% down. The Australian newspaper reports that the opposition Treasury spokesman, Labor's Jim Chalmers, says that what ScoMo and Frydenberg have to understand is that 2.4 million Australians are still unemployed or underemployed, and many small businesses are under enormous pressure. Yep, well, you might want to tell your mates McGowan, Palaszczuk and Chairman Dan about that too, Jim. The Reserve Bank governor says he thinks the unemployment rate will peak lower than his previous estimate of 8%, so that's good to hear. The bank's forecasting real GDP growth of 4% next year and 5% in 2022. We really are the lucky country, aren't we? And I really hope that as we open up again to the world, which we absolutely must do in the months ahead, that we have the immunity required to avoid a first real wave of COVID and even more shutdowns. Well, speaking of being the lucky country, we had such incredibly low COVID numbers that there really wasn't any need to close the state borders inside the country. That was all just political zones set up around outbreak areas would have been more than enough uh, to control things and what other countries did. But that would have required very nuanced and high quality, delicate management, which is something our state governments and our state bureaucrats don't seem to be equipped for. New South Wales seems to have gotten it mostly right, though. The rest should learn and do better. I'd feel more sympathetic to the huge tasks that they faced, and I'd probably be being a bit nicer about it all, were it not for the horrible decisions that we saw being made by many state health departments on individual exemptions and special cases and things like that. And the absolute arrogance of the premiers of both party stripes, with the sole exception of Gladys, probably. But at just 35 deaths per million population, we've done extraordinarily well. If we look at deaths per million of population around the world, Belgium is by far the world's worst-hit nation with 1,460 deaths per million. That's one person dying of or with COVID per 700 people. Worldwide deaths are now at 1.4 million. Peru comes in second 
uh, place, just over 1,100 deaths per million. Spain at 966, Italy 935, and the UK at 882. Argentina, Mexico, Brazil, and Chile are all in the 800s. The United States is actually the 12th worst hit nation. You'd think it was the, the worst hit if you listen to the Australian media and the US media, but no, it was actually 12th uh, at 820 deaths per million. Still pretty bad. And uh, the worst uh, total number overall, of course, was the US because of its size. So it's had uh, 270,000 deaths. But the statisticians say it's really hard to compare countries because they all use different methods to count fatalities. Um, and then they change them again during the course of the pandemic. So Belgium, for example, counts suspected coronavirus deaths in their figures, which may account for the high number. So it's it's really confusing. But these numbers are all from the John Hopkins University. Britain has become the first country in the world to approve the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine for widespread use. Vulnerable groups like the elderly and frontline medical workers will be the first in line for the jab from next week. It's a two-shot vaccine to get to the 95% effectiveness. 20 million Britons will be vaccinated under the government program for free. Uh, They bought 40 million doses from Pfizer. In Australia, we've got a deal with Pfizer to get 10 million doses, so we'll be able to immunise 5 million people. The Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia says uh, it will approve the vaccine by late January, and uh, Health Minister Greg Hunt says the first doses here will be doled out in March. Thankfully, there have been no adverse serious reactions to the vaccine among the 20,000-plus people who volunteered for the initial trial. Uh, Experts say that people will be immune seven days after you get the second dose. And the two doses have to be three weeks apart. So basically four weeks from the time you get the first dose, you'll be immune. But you'll get partial immunity 12 days after you take the first dose. And side effects, um, where there were some, were mild and short, lasting for only a day or two. And that's about the same as, as most other vaccines. So things looking fairly good on the vaccine front there. Some other good news is that the latest COVID-19 waves across Europe seem to be finally subsiding, but they're still doing it pretty tough in the mother country. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson saw his tiered system for coronavirus restrictions finally passed in Parliament on Tuesday night, London time. But he copped a lashing from 60 of his own Conservative Party backbenchers who are furious about the restrictions to civil liberties and suggestions that the coronavirus vaccine would be made compulsory by coercion. One of the most passionate speakers was Tory MP Sir Desmond Swain, who had this to say. Why will you be able to buy a pint in a sports venue without getting anything to eat? But if you order a pint in a pub, you'll have to have a substantial meal. I'll leave that hanging as the great existential question of the day. Madam Deputy Speaker, suppression in anticipation of vaccination is the reason for these measures before us today. But people have been writing to me for months, terrified that a vaccine will be compulsory. And I've responded by saying, don't be so absolutely ridiculous. It could never possibly happen. 
We're a Conservative government, after all. And now we discover, now we discover that a vaccination may be a passport to the acquisition of your civil liberty, liberties, and without which you will have all sorts of things that you would be able to do denied to you. Can I say that that would be absolutely disproportionate to a, a virus with a mortality rate of verging on 1%. It would equally be a terrible precedent to set for other vaccines and medicines. Uh, so I hope that we can get away from that. The way to persuade people to have a vaccine is, of course, to line up the entire government and its ministers and their loved ones and let them take it first and then get all the lovies, the icons of popular culture, out on the airwaves singing its praises. To have any kind of suggestion of coercion absolutely feeds the conspiracy theory that we are being cowed and our liberties being taken away. Very I'm extremely grateful to him for giving way. It's, will he agree with me that it's not enough for the government merely to refrain from coercing people? The government's also got to pay attention to implicit coercion. That is, if the government turns a blind eye to allowing businesses like airlines and restaurants to refuse to let people in unless they've had the vaccination, the government's got to decide whether it's willing to allow people to discriminate on that basis. Discrimination. It would be vaccinationism. Which we must, of course, resist. The other thing that any kind of coercion would do would be to set the seal on this government's reputation as the most authoritarian since the Commonwealth of the 1650s. But it is as nothing to the enthusiasm that we've seen from the front bench opposite for even more coercive and restrictive measures. That's a very impassioned Tory MP, Sir Desmond Swain, there. Despite the revolt, the bill was still passed because Labour MPs were instructed to abstain by their leader. The new law means that 99% of England is now in the top two tiers, and that bans the mixing of households indoors. Tier three is the highest tier, and that looks like it's covering uh, those in the north of England and Kent. And for them, all social contact is prohibited indoors or out. Got some great news. The Other Side Australia is very happy to now be one of the shows available on the Good Source Network. The Good Source, spelt S-A-U-C-E dot news, is an Australian platform for right-thinking podcasts and vlogs. When I moved back to Australia early this year after spending almost 20 years in Asia, I was shocked at how journalism had changed since the late 90s when I was on Channel 10. Like America, Australia's broadcast media was becoming very editorialised and political. But unlike America, it seemed only one ideological viewpoint dominated, the left, with only a couple of notable exceptions. The Good Source is a right-thinking website bringing some truth and balance to the Aussie media echo chamber. Good Source is the first conservative source of videos and podcasts like mine by so many independent voices from around the country, from classical liberals like me to libertarians and conservatives. We agree and we disagree, but we at least bring the other side of the conversation to the table. Subscribe to email updates and become a Good Source supporter at the team's website. 
That's goodsource, S-A-U-C-E dot news. The Global Times newspaper in China, which is considered to be the mouthpiece of the Chinese Communist Party government, this week warned Australia would face lasting punishments for its treatment of China. It said Beijing sees no reason to continue the appeasement of Australia, and it said the Morrison government was not a ruling team that is serious and trustworthy in relations with China. If Australia's values do not include a respect for a country with a population of 1.4 billion, it said, Chinese society will help the Australians establish such a concept, regardless of how long it will take. We have enough patience, end quote. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds rather ominous. Australian embassy officials met their Chinese counterparts in Beijing this week to try to get a formal apology over the offensive fake war crimes meme that was posted on Twitter by Chinese Foreign Ministry Deputy Director General Zhao Lijian. The meeting in Beijing was supposed to happen on Monday night. It got suddenly cancelled and then it eventually happened late Tuesday. They love playing old-school diplomatic games, don't they? Sources told the Australian newspaper that the meetings went well, but didn't say too much more than that. But it was great to see some really strong words and backbone from our Prime Minister this week when Zhao's disgusting tweet emerged. Here's a good chunk of what ScoMo said, in case you missed it or if you only saw little sound bites on the news. The repugnant post made today of an image, a falsified image, of an Australian soldier threatening a young child with a knife, a post made on an official Chinese government Twitter account, posted by the Deputy Director General of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, is truly repugnant. It is deeply offensive. The Chinese government should be totally ashamed of this post. It it diminishes them in the world's eyes. I want to make a couple of points about this. Australia is seeking an apology from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs from the Chinese government for this outrageous post. We are also seeking its removal immediately and have also contacted Twitter to take it down immediately. It is a false image and a a terrible slur on our great defence forces and the men and women who've served in that uniform for over 100 years. There are undoubtedly tensions that exist between China and Australia, but this is not how you deal with them. Prime Minister Scott Morrison there letting Beijing have it in no uncertain terms. Now, you might not know that uh, Beijing has actually frozen all contact between Australian and Chinese leaders and ministers over the past 12 months. But there are some back-channel relationships. China still will not apologise over the tweet, and their embassy in Canberra said we were overreacting. Classic gaslighting. I'll abuse you and then accuse you of being irrational when you react normally. The spokeswoman called on the Morrison government to face up to the breakdowns in relations with Beijing and to take constructive practical steps to help bring it back on the right track. The accusations made are simply to serve two purposes, she said. One, 
is to deflect public attention from the horrible atrocities by certain Australian soldiers. The other is to blame China for the worsening of bilateral ties. There may be another attempt to stoke domestic nationalism. End quote. I really hope that the lovies in Australia who defend China's Communist Party government in some woke virtue-signalling dance of perverted self-criticism will start to wake up and smell the roses. Your apologism for the CCP regime is an insult to all Australians who respect freedom and liberty and democracy, and all Australians who served and died to protect those things. And it's an insult to the people of Hong Kong, Taiwan, Tibet, the Uyghurs, etc., etc. So please stop it. You don't look smart and intellectually superior. You look childish and ignorant. And while some Australians don't think we should even be standing up for ourselves, the United States stood up for us. Arthur Culverhouse is the United States ambassador to Australia. He said China, quote, would do well to follow Australia's example. By that, he means our transparency around the problems that we're having with our SAS. And, quote, disclose to the world all it knows about the origins of the COVID-19 crisis. And the world could only wish that the Chinese Communist Party were to bring the same degree of transparency and accountability to credible reports of atrocities against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province. Exactly. The US also condemned China's big new tariffs on Australian wine. Australian wine will be featured at a White House holiday reception this week, the NSA's White House office said in a tweet. They said it was a pity that vino lovers in China who, due to Beijing's coercive tariffs on Australian voters, will miss out. In contrast, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, having already sold out most of her nation to China, slapped them with a feather. She said her government had registered directly with Chinese authorities our concern over the use of that image. I've seen some of the uh, latest uh, discussion over what was a, a Twitter image, um, which we've seen a lot of commentary over. New Zealand has registered directly uh, with Chinese authorities. Our concern over the use of that image, it was um, uh, it was an unfactual post, uh, and of course that would concern us. So that is something that we've raised directly in the manner that New Zealand does when we have such concerns. Whilst that is an exchange that's happening between Australia and China, it will of course tip into spaces where, as a general principle, we may have concerns and we'll raise those. In this case, an image has been used that is um, that is not uh, factually correct. It, it's not a, a genuine image. Uh, so we have raised that directly with Chinese authorities in keeping with the way that we would raise areas of concern for us. Ooh, an unfactual post. That's it. That's all she's got to say about it. It was a disgusting post. There's plenty more that you could say, Jacinda, to respect the Anzacs, I think. Now, despite calls by the Prime Minister to Twitter to remove the offensive post, Twitter on Tuesday said it wouldn't ban Mr Zhao's tweet, but the image would be marked as, quote, sensitive media. Any doubt now about Twitter's political bias, if there ever was? 
The Daily Mail Australia reported that China now owns key ports, mines, agricultural land, dairy processes, valuable real estate, state-sponsored schools, plus water and energy companies here in Australia. The newspaper says that the rosy days of 2015, when the Northern Territory government decided to lease the port of Darwin to the Chinese-owned company Landbridge for 99 years, now seem long gone. But such deals cannot be undone. The controversial $500 million deal was called into question, you may recall, at the time, by Barack Obama. Northern Territory Labor MP Luke Gosling told the Daily Mail Australia that the lease is a concern because all Australian companies, even those privately owned, are still accountable to Beijing, especially one that owns critical infrastructure abroad. The paper reports that the Belt and Road Initiative, the global development plan that Dan Andrews signed Victoria up for a bit of against the wishes of the federal government, is a key policy of President Xi Jinping and China aims to build and own infrastructure in as many countries throughout the world as possible to increase those nations' dependence on China. That's what the Belt and Road Initiative is all about. It's about extending China's power throughout the world, right? To own as much infrastructure as it possibly can. We'll help you build that bridge. We'll help you build this. We'll do that. We'll buy this. We'll buy that. And it's all about just getting control. So do we get what's happening now, people? Thank God the Morrison government's foreign relations bill passing through Parliament at the moment. These are the new laws that are going to make it easier for the federal government to stomp on any deals that state governments, city councils or universities might do directly with China or any other country. These laws really are essential to ensure that Australia's foreign policy remains out of the hands of state premiers and bureaucrats. Well, what are the bigwigs in Canberra saying about our relationships with China at the moment. Francis Adamson has been the head of Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs since 2016. Previously, she was the Australian ambassador to China. And before that, she was the High Commissioner to Great Britain. She is our top foreign affairs department bureaucrat. And so when she speaks, the power people in Canberra listen. She gave a speech recently, and here's what she said. The geostrategic landscape in the Indo-Pacific region is changing. Over the past decade, China's influence has risen as its economic weight has continued to grow, challenging American power, influence and interests as the US national security strategy articulated. This economic success has underpinned strong growth in China's military spending, delivering a significant boost in the range and sophistication of China's capabilities for projecting force in its region and beyond. In addition to its increased military might, Secretary Adamson said China has become the largest trading partner of nearly all countries in our region. Unsurprisingly, this has also meant that China wants to set rather than merely adopt international standards. China wants to lead rather than simply join international institutions. The government anticipated much of this complex arena of increasing contest in the 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper. Aware of the rapid changes to Australia's external environment, the government needed to develop a framework under which we could, in a coherent, consistent way, advance Australia's national interests, built on our foundational values, such as our support for political, economic and religious freedoms. Drawing on Australia's tradition of constructive diplomacy, we're responding to strategic uncertainty and the accelerating trends I've described above. We are building new coalitions across the Indo-Pacific, 
As we look ahead at the next 10 years, the key question for Australia will be how successful are we at pursuing our national interests in this tougher, riskier environment defined by strategic competition? Secretary Adamson then moved on to remind China and us that the emerging nation's newfound power isn't without limit. The rest of the world has done a lot of thinking about China's power and what it means, but it is less apparent that China has carefully considered other countries' reactions to its conduct internationally. China may have reached a point where it believes that it can largely set the terms of its future engagement with the world. If it has, I believe it is mistaken. And that is because there is far more to be gained for China and for everyone else through working constructively and collaboratively within the international system without resort to pressure or coercion. The future of our region depends in part on China's decisions, but it also depends on the decisions made by other countries in the Indo-Pacific, including the United States and other regional partners. The main challenge for Australia's foreign policy is one of shaping, with other countries, a regional and global order that responds to the new realities of power. Inevitably, we are involved in a competition for influence, because how the regional order evolves will profoundly shape our security and other interests. Our interests lie in stability and in the character of the enduring peace we seek. Defining the character of our enduring peace isn't just about China. We have to be influential with the United States too. As the triumphant leader of the Allies in 1945, the United States rebuilt Europe and then went on to rebuild much of the world in its own image. As a culture, it remains incredibly attractive and powerful. But its internal challenges, as President-elect Biden has made clear, will be a priority for the incoming administration and will shape the character of its international engagement. The moment of a single global superpower has gone, and now we have a sharper competition for power with many more visible and invisible sources of global influence than in previous decades. As the Prime Minister has said, we look to America, but we won't leave it to America. More and more, the United States has to share power, even as we understand that American power and purpose at home and abroad remain essential to the regional order we seek, the sort of multilateral system we need, and to reviving the global economy. And that was the head of Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs, Francis Adamson, in a speech on securing Australia in an age of disruption. That was uh, on the Australian National University's National Security Podcast, and a link to that is in the program notes if you'd like to listen to Francis Adamson's whole speech. Just as a side note, Francis Adamson's five-year contract at DFAT uh, is up next July, and she's rumoured to be the first in line for the governorship of South Australia, which comes up late next year. The Secretary of the Defence Department, Greg Moriarty, is uh, the one who's rumoured to be likely to take her place uh, as the head of the Foreign Affairs Department. Interesting times we live in. We will keep you up to date on this podcast, uh, on all the details, uh, in a simple and clear way as we possibly can. So stay with us on the other side from week to week. It got me stone cold. Coming up, Alexandra Marshall is next with all the news from the Twitterverse. And stay with us for our comprehensive update on the US election dramas with Ray. Lots more to come. Don't go away. And 
And remember to follow us on YouTube by actually clicking the subscribe button, the like button, and the little bell button next to the subscribe button. It's all free, and it'll help you keep notified of when our new episodes come up. You can search us up on The Other Side Australia or check the Good Source channel. That's S-A-U-C-E. Uh, and you'll find all the other great shows on that Good Source platform too. If you're a podcast person, we are on Apple, Spotify, and iHeartRadio, so please do subscribe there. And join our Facebook page. We uh, we update a lot on there, and we upload the podcast every Friday morning for your commute to work or gym workout or walk in the woods, boily. And we get you up to speed before the weekend. That's the main thing. Or over the weekend, if you don't have time to listen on a Friday. But we're here for you every weekend and every Friday morning when we upload. And joining us now, as always, Alexandra Marshall, the queen of Australian libertarian, classical liberal and conservative Twitter. Welcome back to the show, Alexandra. What a lovely week we've had dealing with the uh, delightful communists up north. Oh, it just never ends. I've actually been enjoying myself because as uh, communist China uh, heats up their little propaganda war, Twitter has been overtaken by the most hilarious Chinese propaganda bots. And I've never seen such great comedy for years. They're brilliant. I love them. They all keep attacking me and I, I just can't stop laughing at the barely literate insults they try to uh, level at Australians, forgetting, of course, that Westerners trash talk each other far more brutally than anything that's come out of a, out of a little... Uh, a bot farm. I remember when there was a lot of to and fro with the bot farms attacking Hong Kong Chinese, and it was uh, quite amusing because it was you are the you are the lap dogs of Britain. You are the the dogs <laughs> of the dogs of China, the peasants of China, and the Hong Kong academics were firing back. You know, it was just going back and forth on Twitter. This this very hostile uh, stuff between universities in Beijing and universities in Hong Kong. Please tell us the best one you got. Okay, now, if your listeners need to understand that this is spelled in the most hysterical um, teenage texting fashion as well. But basically it says, somebody may wash your brain out so you won't even type a word to get the truth, but just shouting bullshit like you're enjoying the liberation and we're all pathetic, lol, open your eyes, sis, see something real with your effing blind eyeballs and make things objective, okay? Yeah, that sounds I, like I a may... Google Translate job to me. Yeah. I may need a translator for that one. Yeah. Although, props for getting it inside the word count. Yeah, yeah, props for that. Um, anyway, what concerns me a little bit more on Twitter than the Chinese bots is the Australians, who seem to think that it's just dandy to dump on our own country and our own culture uh, and, and that this is the good time to do it. Yes, these are the sellouts who have been chilling and apologising for China for a very long time. And some of them I know quite well. And I think the time is coming that these politicians and celebrities will owe the rest of us an apology because their desire to make money off China at any cost has left the rest of us sold up the river to China, which has no intention of playing uh, democratically or fairly or with inside any of the regulations and rules um, of our wonderful geopolitical game. And the one point that I made, and I know you've already covered this extensively in your show, but that the 100% renewables target that both Labor and Liberal are pursuing is, is the most dangerous threat to the national security of Australia because it leaves us 100% reliant on Beijing for our energy needs. 
And the fact that nobody in the media has pointed out the national security risk of renewables is it's irresponsible and it should be the first topic of conversation when we talk about yeah. China and the supposed green future because if you have no power and no energy, then I'm sorry, but you actually don't have any sovereignty either. It brings us now to Jimmy Barnes, whose uh, comments oh. on the wonderful, balanced, exceptional ABC program Q&A uh, this week were, were amusing. Have a listen to this. Maybe it was the way we did it. I, I think they certainly reacted badly to it. But I think, uh, you know, we can't just expect, you know, if, if we're Australians and we say, this is wrong, we've got to bloody stand up to it, that might not culturally not, might not be the same way to speak to the Chinese. You know, there has to be diplomacy, like you said. I don't, uh, I don't buy this idea that we've got to match the culture. And I say that as someone with a little bit of experience and probably a bit more than Jimmy in terms of, uh, of, of working uh, with the Chinese, uh, the mainland Chinese, um, and the culture. Uh, I would say that if you don't stand up to China and show your strength, uh, they see that as weakness and they just walk all over you. That's the second time you've made me listen to the ABC, Damien, and Sorry. you are running out of lives, my friend. Sorry. Um, Sorry. Yes. So Jimmy Barnes thinks that it's culturally insensitive to hold China fast becoming the largest global power to basic international law regarding pandemic outbreaks. This is a law that every other nation has to submit themselves when an outbreak takes place, just like the UK did when foot and mouth came out. So for China to say that it's, well, for China, for there to be any kind of perception amongst Australian citizens that it's somehow culturally unacceptable to hold a nation with a veto seat on the UN and an overseer of human rights accountable for some pretty serious violations of international law is ridiculous. Quite frankly, it's victim blaming of countries like Australia who did nothing wrong and suffered all the, all the cost of China's mistake. The idea that that tweet is in any way acceptable and that we should be in any way apologising for it uh, or apologising for reacting to it the way that we did is just utterly ridiculous. Um, the so correct reaction should have been to reclaim all of our ports immediately and stop allowing them to export baby formula to China. I was quite pleased to see Scott Morrison taking a strong stance at last and being at least a bit firm uh, on this. There has been a bit of talk among conservatives that Scott Morrison is failing us. Um, but you did a bit of uh, a, a little bit of Twitter research, not that it's scientifically accurate, but you know, it's pretty good indicator sometimes of the taking the temperature. Tell us about that. Yeah, so unlike the left-wing and mainstream media, I actually ask the base, the conservative base, what they think, and I know who these people who are responding to me are. So I know from watching them for years online that these are real conservatives. They are real voters who sit there and they vote for the Liberal Party or they vote for the National Party. And I asked this question of them. Attention, Liberals and Conservatives in Ozpol. I'm writing a new article and I'd be interested to know what annoys you most about the current conservative parties in Australia. You may list more than one grievance. And I tell you what, I got more than one grievance from this. I got more than 230 replies from people who were very eager to tell um, the conservative party what they're doing wrong. And it's pretty unanimous. The most common words I saw in this replies were spineless. They have lost touch with conservative values. They are behaving like a far-left green party. Their policy decisions make no sense for their supposed advertised values. They are too soft 
on China. And when they stand up, it's only because of public pressure to make them do so, not because it's part of a strategy, you know, to hold our own against China. They are basically greens as far as energy policy goes. And most of conservatives agree that renewables are a dangerous and damaging venture for the planet. And they should be looking at cheap energy and particularly nuclear, like you say. And they think that this whole broad church has led to left-wing politicians sitting in safe liberal seats because they paid to be there, people like Malcolm Turnbull. Um, And it's a pretty damning uh, list of criticisms. And it's not like these are new criticisms from Twitter. These are the same criticisms I hear at CPAC. They're the same things I hear from members of the Liberal Party who um, are worried about their own party and the direction it's gone. Um, And it's... I wonder how many liberals actually sit down and read the criticism of their party and have any idea how their blue ribbon base feels about their direction. Yeah, I do wonder. Um, I wonder also whether it's even possible in our political system to win government and hold government um, if you take a conservative stance or at least even a free market liberal or libertarian stance, even if you're not a social conservative. Um, and I think about the politicians that have done that in the past, um, the most notable. Well, you've been um, gone for a while, Damien, and every time a conservative steps up and acts like a conservative, they win a thumping majority. The conservative parties lose power when they start mimicking the left. But, but look at Campbell Newman in Queensland. He had other problems that were unrelated to conservative politics. I, uh, you look more like people like Tony Abbott, who, as far as political polls went, he won a landslide and he would have won again if they'd taken him to the, to the actual election. They listened to polls, which we know from experience are meaningless rather than letting an election sort out, uh, sort it out. Uh, John Howard, one of the more conservative politicians that we've had. I'm more cynical than you. I, I just don't know if um, with where Australia is at at the moment culturally, you could ever get elected if you, if you were a conservative uh, and strong, a strong conservative. If we don't do something would, about the ABC and we don't do something about our education systems first and change the culture and move the needle on the culture back to, you know, um, something that even loosely respects hard work, innovation, success, and doesn't want to take everything away from anybody who makes a buck. The, these these sort of left-wing values that seem to be very entrenched in the culture or appear to be, for me, as someone coming back after being away for a while, they seem to be much more entrenched than they were. Maybe it's because I was living in a you know, very free market sort of city um, with a communist country breathing down its neck, so I was particularly sensitive to, <laughs> to this stuff. But, well, but I, feels- I, have, I have stood, I've stood on the polls, Damien, for the for the elections that you weren't here for, and I can tell you that people have been voting for the Conservative Party reluctantly because Labor freaks them out. So Liberals have been winning because right. they hate Labor more. But everything that I hear said over and over and over again is they want a real conservative government. They would vote for them in droves. And that is the problem with conservatives who refuse to be conservatives. They are perceived as weak. And mm. that is why their their idea of going further and further left is leaving them in this election abyss and this uh, misunderstanding that people prefer left-wing governments when really they just don't want to vote for a leader with no policies and no uh, no voice. When Scott Morrison took over from Turnbull, it was meant to be Dutton. The public support for getting rid of Turnbull was to put Dutton in his place and then Turnbull picked his mate off the side and pushed Scott Morrison in front of the camera and the Australian people were like, hang on, what? 
this whole thing was meant to be to put a conservative back in power of the Liberal Party, not to put a Turnbull light in power. And so we, this Conservative Party almost did the right thing, but there were too many of this broad church um, lino liberals sitting there making a decision about who the leader was going to be, and that left us with basically Turnbull Mark II. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with you 100%. I, I think that uh, Dutton, you know, would, would be a good leader. Uh, but I think like Abbott, um, to make them appeal to Australia more broadly. They need someone to come in there and just tear that left mentality, mentality apart. Like your hero, Reagan, They need to, we need to have a conservative who's not afraid to fight the culture wars. But if we had a conservative who was prepared to sit there and put real changes in to grow small business and to support the working class of Australia, who yeah. are the major voting group, then they would win in a landslide because that's the most important thing right now is a, a politician who understands business, and we do not have one. Is the small business sector a the, the largest voting bloc? Yes, it is. Okay. It employs it employs about 80% of all Australians and accounts for about 96% of all business in Australia. But the Australians that it employs are not necessarily don't necessarily have the same interests, right? I mean, they might be... They will just- when their jobs are gone. They reckon they've already lost half of small businesses in Melbourne, and they're set to lose two-thirds. So, oh yes, a lot God. of people have lost their jobs. Oh, dear. It's all so depressing. So we've been, uh, been a bit too serious now. Let's lighten the mood a little bit, Alexandra. Also on Twitter this week, there's been some mysterious objects appearing in deserts. Yes. Yeah, so amongst all the serious political end-of-world stuff going on, there was a, a trend on Twitter about some monoliths, these mirrored objects, appearing in the Utah desert. And... Now they're appearing in Romania as well, and everyone's sort of sitting there going, is there an alien invasion scheduled for 2021? Should we be worried about this? Should we stop talking about politics and start talking about, I don't know, some 2001 Space Odyssey stuff? Um, And then came the very confusing clarification that BLM had been asked to deny putting them in the desert. And so what? the next natural thing people are going is BLM. Yeah, there's, there's, I kid you not, there are all these news articles about BLM denying putting monoliths in the desert. Can I now, just say before you talk about BLM, I'm looking at a photo from Reuters of one of these monoliths and it's anything but a monolith. It looks like a little piece of metal sticking up out of the sand that somebody's, you know, just sort of plonked there. It's hardly crop circle level uh, phenomenon going on here with these monoliths. But anyway... Don't shame the aliens. That might be the I'm best sorry. thing they could put up there. That's it's the cool. war of the worlds. It's the war of the worlds. So I'll get critical the critical of their artwork. Yeah. Anyway, turns out that it's not Black Lives Matter with too much time on their hands, carting things into deserts. It actually stands for the Bureau of Land Management. Oh. Who were forced to deny <laughs> that it was a marketing program, which it still might be. Um, but yeah, so either we're being invaded by aliens or there's a, a pretty good marketing crew in town. But it's definitely not the Bureau of Land Management or any other BLM. I wonder what they're trying to market. Maybe it's Gillette trying to win back its razor market. They could be razors, but yeah. I want one. I, where's my monolith? I've got a paddock. They can put one in there. Most men I speak to now will not use Gillette razors. They will only use Schick thanks to that grossly offensive um, patronising ad campaign they ran a couple of years they, ago. They came out and tried to salvage themselves the other day with a, a new manly, um, can, I, can I use that adjective, manly campaign. And uh, it's it, all it had was comments being like, screw you, we are never coming back to Gillette. You yeah. burned those yeah, bridges. Yeah, they burned it. 
Yep, get woke, go broke, as they say. All right, Ellie, thank you very, very much for that. I'm uh, Everyone's going to rush to Twitter now to have a look at this uh, mystery monolith object. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave that one there. Okay. <laughs> have a good week. We'll talk next week. Bye. And joining us now, as usual, on the other side of Australia, covering... All things North American for us, our North America expert, Ray Rudowski, the cool Canadian. How are you, mate? Good day. It's uh, great to be back talking about this because I think it's an absolutely fascinating time. In the past 24 hours, we've had Donald Trump launch a, uh, a video. He's released a video. It's 46 minutes of him presenting in front of the flag, looking very statesmanlike and outlining in a kind of circular way, I've got to say, his case, uh, as you would put it, for... Uh, for his uh, claims of fraud and election interference. This may be the most important speech I've ever made. I want to provide an update on our ongoing efforts to expose the tremendous voter fraud and irregularities which took place during the ridiculously long November 3rd elections. We used to have what was called Election Day. Now we have Election Days, weeks and months, and lots of bad things happened during this ridiculous period of time. As president, I have no higher duty than to defend the laws and the Constitution of the United States. That is why I am determined to protect our election system, which is now under coordinated assault and siege. For months leading up to the presidential election, we were warned that we should not declare a premature victory. We were told repeatedly that it would take weeks, if not months, to determine the winner, to count the absentee ballots, and to verify the results. The constitutional process must be allowed to continue. We are going to defend the honesty of the vote by ensuring that every legal ballot is counted and that no illegal ballot is counted. This is not just about honoring the votes of 74 million Americans who voted for me. It's about ensuring that Americans can have faith in this election and in all future elections. So Donald Trump is speaking just a few hours before you and I are recording this on Thursday afternoon, Australian time. Ray, um, I felt that that, was, that opening was fantastic um, and it set the right tone, uh, which is that this has to be sorted out for the benefit of the integrity of the election, for the benefit of Joe Biden if he is uh, you know, confirmed, and then also for the benefit of all future elections. There are enough question marks hanging out there for, for there to be concern, even if it's not enough to overturn the election result. But I felt that the next 40 minutes, he <laughs> started pretty well, uh, but the rest of it just became very rambly. There were a few points where he had some real data to share and show. It was 46 minutes, the video they put out in the end. It probably was originally an hour plus, and they edited, it looked edited down to me in parts. But um, I, I just think this was the wrong tone um, and that he really needed to put out a 10-minute video that was six minutes of facts and his case and the, what they've put together so far and four minutes of rallying the troops and, and hyperbole. Instead, we got 40 minutes of hyperbole and six minutes of facts. Well, I see it completely differently. I think that um, when I look at that, what I see is beyond what he's saying and looking at the greater context. I thought it was shocking that none of the American major networks, the major mainstream media, cover this live. 
or cover this at all. And immediately they always go into the thing that is like his weakest part, you know, whether it's the rambling part or whether there's something. The fact is it's a very confusing story. And the fact is that there's all these different lawsuits going on. There's hearings going on. There's legal challenges. And then there's been some very interesting developments which haven't really gotten proper scrutiny. And I agree with you 100% on the media's negligence here in not covering this. Uh, properly and thoroughly and just oh there's nothing to see here folks you open up the washington post's website this morning a couple of hours after trump's speech and it's you know trump repeats baseless claims of blah 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 you know okay some of the claims might be baseless but there there's some pretty compelling testimony and some pretty compelling uh question marks that that need to be investigated and explored no matter what your political view is or what you think the the outcome of the election should be or, or will be, right? You're absolutely right. And I think these are very credible claims that haven't really been explored. The media hasn't covered the various hearings in which whistleblowers that saw things or heard things that they felt were wrong have come forward and under oath testified about that. Let's have a listen uh, to some of the Hannity uh, program on Fox News uh, put together a nice compilation of different testimony uh, from different people in, in the hearings that have been held in a number of different states. Um, and I think it's really compelling listening. Some of them, we'll start with a couple of guys from the US Postal Service, uh, and then you'll hear some other people who are just working as uh, what we call in Australia scrutineers. Important to, to, to really kind of stress that what you're about to hear are sworn statements. So these people are risking perjury if they're proven to be liars. I know I saw ballots with return addresses filled out, thousands of them, loaded onto my trailer in New York and headed for Pennsylvania. But as things became weirder, I got to thinking and wondered why I was driving complete ballots from New York to Pennsylvania. I didn't know why, so I decided to speak up. And that's what I'm doing today. I had a conversation with a different USPS employee named Rachel, in which she admitted that USPS employees were ordered to backdate ballots that were received too late to be lawfully counted. I didn't bring any of this to the attention of my supervisors at USPS at the time due to what I perceived to be their hostility towards President Donald Trump and their evident contempt for the law. I'm not a Trump supporter. I'm not a Biden supporter either. In fact, I didn't vote for either of the main candidates. But something profoundly wrong occurred in Wisconsin during the presidential election, and the American people have a right to know about it. Anytime as a challenger, I tried to look at the ballot and then try to verify it, I would get two or three of the poll workers literally screaming at me to get back six feet. At no time were we able actually to physically see the ballot and then see it in the, the poll electronic book. Not one of the military ballots was a registered voter um, and the ballots looked like they were all exactly the same Xerox copies of the ballot. They were all for Biden across the board. There wasn't a single Trump vote and none of the, the voters were registered. They had to manually enter the names and addresses and a birth date of 1-1-2020 which would override the system and allow them to enter non-registered voters of which I saw several that day. Every military ballot that was logged into the system had a birth date of January 1st, 1900. I also saw the, the ballots being dropped off about 
don't know, 3, 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. And we were all talking about why are these ballots showing up as late as they did. So some pretty serious stuff uh, in terms of the allegations there. And the idea that you can just, the media should be just dismissing this as baseless and not even exploring it and not even questioning it is, again, I would say the most frightening aspect to all of this for me, that you've got the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, MSNBC, NBC, ABC, CBS, all singing in unison uh, the, off the same song sheet that any time someone even questions the validity of the election, they will go with the headline and the word baseless. Right. And the other thing to remember is you left out the Associated Press in which the Attorney General Barr uh, apparently gave an interview and the comment that has been pulled is something to the effect that he didn't see that there was uh, enough evidence of fraud to change the result. Let's bring people up on, to speed on this one. So this is the Associated Press did an interview with the Attorney General of the United States, William Barr, who's a known sort of Trump backer to a certain extent, uh, certainly a, a Republican-minded person, a supporter of the president at one stage. He declared on Tuesday that the United States Justice Department has uncovered no evidence of widespread voter fraud that could change the outcome of the 2020 election. I, I accept that premise, um, but I do not accept the premise that there's no fraud whatsoever or that it wasn't very serious in this election and it needs to be looked into. This is an election where there was 60-plus 60 million plus uh, mail-in ballots. That's unprecedented. That's more than one third of the votes that have come by mail. And I think the, the, the American people deserve their media and their um, Department of Justice to, uh, to, to put the spotlight on this and, and investigate. I'd like to hear the original interview if it was recorded. I'd like to know um, what the context of those comments are. And what I'd also like to know is if he says there's not enough evidence of fraud, does that mean that what evidence of fraud does he think is the most compelling? That isn't in the story. Barr's told the Associated Press that US attorneys and FBI agents have been working to follow up specific complaints and information that they've received, but, quote, to date we have not seen fraud on a scale that could have affected a different outcome. Okay, yep, we get that. And he seems to be focused on that message, Ray. It's just, you know, there isn't fraud on a scale to change the outcome. He's not saying there isn't fraud and he's not saying claims of fraud are baseless, but the media, as you say, are very keen to just go, oop, nothing, nothing to see here, folks. And then they move on to the to the next part of the story, which is, you know, uh, Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer saying, well, I guess he'll be the next one to be fired. Well, the idea again comes out of this story from the media narrative is that, oh, look at him. Even the people around him don't believe that this is happening. But I don't see that in this story because I don't have enough context in terms of what else did Barr say in this interview? And why is Barr giving interviews to the Associated Press where they only pick out one or two little quotes that seem to fit that narrative of everybody around Trump thinks that he's, he's, he's lost it? Ray, another thing I wanted to touch on was the 60 Minutes appearance by Christopher Krebs, who was the head of the uh, agency that's in charge, I've got to get this right, the agency that's in charge of looking into uh, election security from a tech point of view, from an IT systems point of view. Um, so he uh, he was fired by Donald Trump a week or so ago. Uh, we discussed that earlier. Uh, he was he went on to sixty minutes, uh, which is a CBS program in the United States, to to say this. I have confidence in the security of this election because I know the work that we've done for four years. I know that these systems are more secure. I know based on what we have seen 
that any attacks on the election were not successful. We spent something on the order of three and a half years of gaming out every possible scenario for how a foreign actor could interfere with an election. Paper ballots give you the ability to audit, to go back and check the tape and make sure that you got the count right. And that's really one of the keys to success for a secure 2020 election. 95% of the ballots cast in the 2020 election had a paper record associated with it. Compared to 2016, about 82%. That gives you the ability to prove that there was no malicious algorithm or hacked software that adjusted the tally of the vote. And just look at what happened in Georgia. Georgia has machines that tabulate the vote. They then held a hand recount and the outcome was consistent with the machine vote. That tells you that there was no manipulation of the vote on the machine count side. And so that pretty thoroughly, in my opinion, debunks some of these sensational claims out there that I've called nonsense and a hoax, that there is some hacking of these election uh, vendors and their software and their systems across the country. It's, it's just, it's nonsense. So, Ray, that was some pretty compelling um, stuff from Krebs there. What, what's your, your take on that? Anything that fits the narrative of his aides jumping ship and criticizing him or the baseless allegations story gets prominent play. Anything that doesn't fit that is completely ignored or dropped. And I don't, I don't see this as anything more than fitting in with that uh, story, even the way that it was set up in terms of he's pulled up in his bunker White House, uh, and here is an aide, and look at how great this guy is, making him out to be almost like a whistleblower while ignoring actual whistleblowers. Ray, uh, I want to just uh, talk about this coverage. I mean, I'm looking at the Washington Post website right now. The president's just delivered a 46-minute address uh, questioning the validity of an election in the United States. It's it's news. It's unprecedented news. It's massive, actually. And where is it on the Washington Post website? Well, it's up there, but it's on the left, and it says, Trump escalates baseless attacks on election with a 46-minute video rant. That's the headline. Okay, well... Um, Fair enough. You want to take that sort of incredibly editorial stance. Would you like to just report the news first uh, for us as well so that we maybe could could kind of make up our own minds? And all that says to me is, as somebody who likes to think and look behind the news, is, you know, I can't trust the Washington Post and I can't trust the New York Times and I can't trust CNN anymore. I get that that he's probably lost, but please don't tell me that this is completely baseless. I mean, there are some serious questions being raised. The other thing I wanted to say earlier was that what's not being reported are two very interesting things. Earlier this week, you had a situation in Georgia during the recount where uh, one of the Dominion voting system servers breaks down. I mean, how awkward is that? Um, uh, The other thing that was interesting that hasn't really been played up, but is a fact, is the idea that in Georgia, a judge issued an injunction prohibiting the state prohibiting the state from wiping data off those voting systems until further notice. The state wanted to wipe data? That's right. And the state lawyers were arguing that uh, they were trying to protect trade secrets on behalf of Dominion. And that, I think, to me, uh, is a... It's go and read the injunction. 
Now, oh my God. Okay. This is shocking stuff because shouldn't the government be the one that's leading a charge for greater transparency? Yes. But as you start to explore all these um, ideas and stories, you're getting bits and pieces of it. Um, we're, we're still waiting to hear about the Kraken from uh, lawyer Sydney Powell. Uh, she's going to release the Kraken. Is it still just a little flailing squid, or do we really have the Scandinavian folklore gigantic sea monster starting to emerge, Ray, do you think? We are starting to see something that is greater emerge from the depths of the ocean, and what we're seeing is, again, proof of that through the hearings that are taking place, the fact that uh, in um, Pennsylvania, the uh, a group of Republican legislators are pushing to uh, block certification of the vote, You've got these um, whistleblowers, uh, these other evidence, um, various court cases going on. Lots of questions being raised about the voting systems and the company behind them. Uh, Then I think you've got. uh, We need to see hard evidence. We've got to see hard evidence. I want hard evidence. She's got to get cracking on the cracking. We've seen evidence. Uh, Yeah, we've got witnesses. We've got testimony. I get that. But I think we've got to see there's got to be something, um, you know, more tangible uh, coming out of this. Um, And again, I'm not excusing the media for ignoring it in any stretch uh, of the imagination. That that is just disgusting. It's disgusting the way the media is behaving, the mainstream media is behaving in the United States. And there's nobody that could could validate or justify what they're doing. It's split in two. You've got to go to two places to get the, the whole story. Uh, nobody's acting really responsibly in their coverage of this. And if anybody is balanced now, it looks like it's Fox News. Well, there is no objectivity in all of this. And I think that that polarization is building mistrust between individuals. And that, again, is a very dangerous and explosive situation for the future of the republic. Yeah. Yeah, it's sad times and dangerous times. I mean, you know, December and January are going to be pretty freaky. So hold on for a rocky ride. Hey, did you hear about Joe Biden having a little mishap? Yeah, well, that's another interesting story. Rather than looking a little bit more into his background and into the background of the people that he's planning to appoint to his cabinet, the big story is he broke his ankle playing fetch with his dog, and now he has to wear a big boot cast. And there was something else I saw that uh, was supposedly some little goofy release that the media were put playing up of a statement from the first dog elect and the first line of it was like bark 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 and i just thought come on with all of this stuff that's surrounding the bite the potential for an incoming biden administration there's nothing about his um you know the hunter laptop story there's nothing about the china collusion story prior to this there's nothing about anything other than oh who's a good boy and I think that that is a big statement about the state of media today. Well, Miranda Devine from the New York Post and the Sydney Daily Telegraph said that the idea of Biden limping his way to the inauguration was probably a fitting metaphor. And I think that sums it up. All right, mate. Thank you uh, once again for your incredible uh, time and effort here and keeping your ear on the other side of the story with the conservative media in the United States for us so that we can have a slightly more balanced uh, perspective and at least discuss these issues. Thanks a lot for having me. Catch you next week, mate. And we're going to catch you next week too. Thank you very much. That's all we've got time for this week. Thanks for joining us, and we will be back next week with even more of The Other Side Australia. Don't forget to please like and subscribe. I know that sounds like a 
a thing you hear a lot, but it's really important that you click the subscribe. It doesn't cost anything. Click the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on, especially if it's YouTube, and also click the like button and the little notification bell uh, next to the subscribe button because all of those things help to elevate our algorithm and get us uh, get us up uh, a little bit higher in on people's feeds. So help us out there. That's the best way to help us, actually. If you'd like to help us financially, the uh, subscribe star platform is where we take uh, supporting donations and uh, we spend that on marketing efforts at the moment. That's all 100% goes to marketing. So um, promoting the podcast and helping it grow. So that's uh, subscribe star. Uh, and you just search up The Other Side or Damien Curry, uh, and it'll come up for you. So thanks again. Have a great week. We'll catch you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.